The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the third episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 9th of September, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from across the world on the possible solutions to the energy crisis, the Italian general election that will be held on the 25th of September, and the course of the war in Ukraine. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. The first series of editorials for the day is focused on possible solutions to the energy supply problem linked to European dependence on Russian gas. Europe will be shaped by its crises, and it will be the sum of the solutions adopted for those crises, is the opening quote from one of the fathers of the European Union, Jean Monnet, that kicks off today's first editorial from the British newspaper Financial Times. For journalist Martin Wolf, we do not know whether Monet's optimist perspective will prevail, but Putin has attacked the principles on which post-war Europe was built. According to a study cited by Wolf, the incoming energy crisis will be far more severe than those of the 70s due to the worsening terms of trade that would amount to 5.3% of Italy's annual GDP and 3.3% of Germany's. Moreover, the energy crisis is closely linked to the climate change crisis. For Wolf, the key to getting out of this situation is renewable energy. We need much more clean energy, both because of climate risks and to reduce dependence on unreliable fossil fuel suppliers. We cannot predict how and when this energy war will end. But of one thing, Wolf is certain. The immediate and long-term future of Europe is at stake. Even for the columnist of the Belgian newspaper Le Soir, the solution to the current crisis is renewable energies. The authors, Fabrice Brion and Arnaud Stevenart, proposed the creation of an energy Airbus. As was the case for the multinational European aviation conglomerate, born from the union of individual European companies, the columnist suggests creating a European industrial consortium for the production and distribution of energy, which respects the environment, guarantees our energy independence and creates quality jobs. They too refer to the beginnings of the EU, offspring of the European coal and steel community, created out of the need to regulate the European state's need for raw materials. Dependence on Russian gas is a defeat on all fronts. It poses great geopolitical, economic and environmental problems and also leads us to finance countries that do not share our ideals as well as widen the inequalities caused by inflation. It may sound like a utopian proposal, the columnist writes, but if a number of states and national industries were able to agree to cooperate on a sensitive issue like defense, it is certainly possible to do the same with energy. The EU has already partly missed the digital industry train, whose main companies are Chinese or American. Brian and Stephen Acht conclude, but we have the means and the resources to become a world leader in green energy. Today's latest editorial on the subject takes us to Spain, to the newspaper El Mundo. Columnist Gregario Martin Etglas, professor of computer science at the University of Valencia, and Candido Mendez Rodriguez, a former trade unionist, start from the debate on nuclear energy in Spain, 
to reflect on how this form of energy could help us free ourselves from the dependence on Russian gas. Putin's intentions being well known, the authors argue, the European Parliament understood the deep reasons for the change to happen and approved the inclusion of nuclear energy as a renewable source. Without this decision, it would not be possible for Europe to realistically address its energy deficit today. Glass and Rodriguez also point that, although nuclear energy poses environmental risks, it must be approached pragmatically. Despite the risks associated with nuclear energy, it is still safer and more reliable than having to import fossil fuels from authoritarian regimes that do not share our values on civil, political and environmental rights. We must, the editorial concludes, be willing to look at the long term and reach an agreement on our energy security. Let's now move on and talk about the Italian general elections, which will be held on the 25th of September. As of today, the right-wing coalition composed of Forza Italia, Lega and Fratelli d'Italia is given as a favourite at the polls. The Italian elections are also being closely followed abroad, as a change of government could also bring with it changes in relations between Italy and the rest of the EU. What would happen with Giorgio Meloni, wonders Marc Lazar, French historian and sociologist, referring to a possible election to the office of Prime Minister of the leader of Fratelli d'Italia. His editorial is hosted by the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. Lazar draws two possible scenarios. The first is that of open confrontation, continuous tensions and bitter controversies. This is also likely to have an impact on the economic relations between the two countries. In the second case, on the other hand, state interests could prevail. Macron and Meloni would bury their past rifts and seek some rare minimum points of understanding without enthusiasm. Indeed, the differences between the two leaders are many. While Macron is a fervent pro-European, Giorgio Meloni is Eurosceptic, closer to the Visgard group of countries than to Brussels. Meloni's electoral affair is also being closely followed by the head of the Rassemblement National, Marine Le Pen, with whom the Italian leader shares many political ideas. Whatever the outcome of the vote, Meloni's and Le Pen's popularity show that radical right-wing populism thrives in both France and Italy, a reflection of the deep crisis of our democracies, Lazar concludes. If mutual interest in the political affairs of parties with similar agendas comes as no surprise, the same cannot be said of ideologically different parties. Such is the case with the visit of Manfred Weber, president of the European People's Party and member of the German Christian Social Union Party to the leaders of Forza Italia. Antonio Tajani and Silvio Berlusconi. The meeting in question is the subject of the next editorial, which comes from the Spanish newspaper El País. For the Spanish newspaper's editorial board, Weber's visit thus broke the European accordance in isolating the far right, exercised for years by his compatriot Angela Merkel against Alternative for Germany. The other two parties, allied with Forza Italia, are actually members of far-right groups in the European Parliament. The normalization of this political spectrum in Italy represents an anomaly in Europe that could prove crucial in the elections, argue the editors of the Spanish paper. 
In Italian institutions and media, the presence of far-right formations is taken for granted, a process that began with Berlusconi and Forza Italia in the 90s, who now hold minority roles in the coalition that will run for election. Lega and Fratelli d'Italia have supplanted Forza Italia in the power relations in the Italian right. And Forza Italia, the editors conclude today, struggles to survive by offering European legitimacy in return. Weber's visit has not gone unnoticed in his home country of Germany. And that is precisely where the last editorial on the issue takes us. More specifically, to the newspaper Der Spiegel. For Michael Sauga, the purpose of the EPP's president's visit would be to increase the political influence of his group, which has been drastically reduced in recent years. Despite the presence of Forza Italia in the pro-European EPP party and recent statements by the leaders of Liga and Fratelli d'Italia that they want to keep Italy in the EU, this position may not be so obvious. Indeed, Meloni's movement has joined forces with the Polish PIS party, which wants national law to take precedence over European law. Moreover, Salvini's League is part of the Identity and Democracy Eurogroup, also includes France's Rassemblement National and Germany's AFD. Stop this man is the journalist's concluding warning, referring to Weber and his increasingly close relations with far-right movements. The international positions of the leaders of Italy's right-wing parties were also commented on by the leader of the so-called Third Pole, Carlo Calenda formed by Italia Viva, a member of the European Democratic Party, and Azion. Calenda tweeted, Forza Italia and Lega have returned to the position of let's surrender to Putin. It's no coincidence that it's happening just as Russia is targeting Italy and that these two parties have brought down Draghi. So much for popular and liberal. We conclude our press review by returning to the topic we have unfortunately become accustomed to by now, the war in Ukraine. Seven months after the start of the Russian invasion, many columnists are wondering what direction the war will take and what its geopolitical consequences might be. The first editorial on the subject comes from the British newspaper The Financial Times. For columnist Lawrence Friedman, Kiev's Kherson offensive is not just about retaking territory, but eroding Russian will to continue its futile and costly war. For Friedman, the way a defender, Ukraine in this case, can try to turn the tide of a war is to create a more advantageous balance of forces and then counterattack. Although Ukraine has created a more favorable balance of forces and can achieve parity of strength in the south, the editorial states as a rule, superior numbers are normally considered necessary to create an irresistible force that could punch through the Russian positions. So much so that even Ukrainian officials have warned not to expect too much too soon. For its part, however, the Kremlin will be hoping that blocking serious advances and inflicting high costs on Ukrainian forces will provoke a sense of hopelessness in Kiev and undermine support from Western capitals, which are already suffering the economic fallout. Friedman points out in conclusion, however, a key difference between the two warring sides. While the Ukrainians are fighting to survive as an independent nation, the Russians are struggling to hold hostile territory. Only they have the option of abandoning the war and going home. 
What can the West do then to help the Ukrainian cause even more? Professor Markus Keim and researcher Ronja Kempin, both of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, have no doubt. Ukraine must join NATO. They explain this in an editorial published in the German newspaper Der Spiegel. For Kempin and Keim, the West's goal must be to ensure the political sovereignty and long-term territorial integrity of Ukraine under the new geopolitical conditions, a goal that can only be achieved by Ukraine's membership in NATO. According to the columnist, notions of peaceful coexistence between Russia and the West do not take into account the revisionist character of the Russian regime. For Putin, the entry of former Soviet countries into the Atlantic alliance is not a risk to his country, but rather an obstacle to his project of restoring a great Russian empire. Nor would EU membership be enough to achieve the goal mentioned earlier, as a union would not have the same deterrence capacity as NATO. The determining factors of the Euro-Atlantic security order have changed dramatically, the scholars state in conclusion. In this new geopolitical context, Ukraine's membership in NATO cannot be disregarded. We cross the German border to France for today's last editorial in Le Figaro. Journalist Renaud Girard sums up the policy followed so far by France towards the conflict in Eastern Europe. The strategy laid out by French President Macron is made up of five points. Helping the attack to Ukraine, maintaining European unity as a division of Europe is one of Putin's goals, preventing the expansion of the conflict, maintaining a dialogue with the Kremlin to prepare the terms of a negotiated peace, and finally, preventing the conflict from causing the division of the world. How then does a columnist judge this policy and that of the European Commission? First of all, according to Girard, sanctions should only hit the Russian military-industrial complex, given the effects these are having indirectly on the European population. In this sense, it would be wiser to adopt a position similar to that of Turkey, which is to mediate and not to subject Russia to sanctions, and aiming at a peace agreement. In addition, the indiscriminate ban on providing European visas to Russians should be removed as it is an immoral and counterproductive collective punishment. In conclusion, France should declare that it wants to be, in the long run, a friend of both the Ukrainian and Russian people, and that it will never choose between the two. We have now reached the end of the third episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone it's me, your host, Gail Rago. See you next week! <laughs>